Amen. Well, let's take our Bibles tonight and turn to 1 John again. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. And we'll get things kicked off again. We'll do a very brief review and then we'll kind of get into the uh, new material for tonight. Again, we're dealing with the subject, the world and you. The world and you. And of course, it's a subject that is very practical and pertinent and uh, boy, I tell you, it's right where we live. So it's a good topic. It's a necessary one. First John chapter two, verse fifteen. <clears throat> there we read, "Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If the if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Again, we kicked the, this series off with those particular, that particular passage. And we, right off the bat, expressed the idea and the thought that the world system is comprised of a couple of things. When the, it talks of the world, it's talking about a political system, an economic system, a social system, a religious system. And that particular system, as we said, is headed up by none other than Satan himself. Now... We said that there is a course by which the world travels. And we know, and we'll talk about it maybe just a little bit more tonight, that Satan, of course, is the head of that. He's the, the, the author of all of that mess. And the Bible says in Ephesians 2, 2, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world. The world has its own course. And, you know, you have to be careful now that you're a believer because you can't walk the way you used to walk because that's the world's course. That's not the believer's course. That's not the child of God's course anymore. And so that course, we found, leads to destruction. We understand that. There's a broad way. There's a narrow way. And boy, I'll tell you what, the course that the world is on is the broad road, the broad way. And it leads to destruction. Now, <clears throat> we said that you and I as believers are delivered from this present evil world. And that's a wonderful thing, because if we weren't delivered from this present evil world, we would be on that broad road that leads to none other than destruction. But now, because we're no longer on that broad road, we're on the narrow road, which leads to life and life everlasting. So that's a wonderful thing. That's a, a great thing. And so we are very happy today, very pleased today, that we have been delivered from this present evil world. Now, the Bible says, because we have been delivered from this present evil world, that we are not to be conformed to it then. That means that we're not to take on its characteristics or its qualities. We're not to look like it, act like it, smell like it, think like it. We're not to be conformed to the image, if you will, of this world. But instead, he says, we're to be conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. We ought to be walking around looking like Jesus. We ought to be thinking like Jesus, acting like Jesus, talking like Jesus, responding like Jesus... That's at least what the Bible says, and that's what God would intend for us to do. So, we learned all of that, and we said that as a result of that fact, and as because of all of those things, we need to understand some things about 
the Christian life and the world in which we live. Number one, we said, we better realize that if you live for Jesus Christ, you're going to encounter opposition from the world. And so we noted that. We said, okay, well, if that's the case, what do you mean? Well, we said you, you'll be opposed because Jesus Christ was opposed. And then we also said you'll be opposed as you live for him. If you fail to live for him, if you're not visibly, verbally standing on behalf of Christ, well, then you can probably expect to get along just fine. But if you choose to take a stand on biblical principle, if you choose to uh, take a stand for what is right in a world that is going in another direction, if you choose to bear the image of Jesus Christ in a world that rejects him, then guess what? you can bet your bottom dollar you're going to experience opposition. Now, today, we want to kind of consider another question then. I want to consider this question. What areas will this opposition come from then? What areas will this opposition come from? And so over the next few minutes, we'll consider that. So before we do, let's have a brief word of prayer. Father, again, we come to you. We want to thank you for giving us the privilege of gathering tonight here in this place. We're grateful, Father, that the heat works in the foyer, especially for tomorrow night as our ladies gather. Lord, we're looking forward to what they're going to glean and how they're going to grow tomorrow night and how their lives will be enhanced and blessed because of the fellowship they'll have one with another. But tonight, we as a church family gather. Not just the ladies, not just the guys, not just the the children, but all of us, one church family, gathering together to be edified, to be exhorted, to be lifted up for your glory. Help us, Lord, to magnify you tonight as we listen, and then, Lord, as we apply your truths. Father, bless us, we pray in Christ's name, amen. What areas will this opposition come from? Well, that's a good question, and I'm sure that some of you, if I would take a poll or if I would come question you independently, you could tell me some areas and you would be probably spot on. But tonight, I'm up here, so let me share with you just a couple of them that I was thinking about and that I believe maybe you thought about as well and maybe we can grow and glean from. First of all, your primary opposition will come from those closest to you. Those who you know the best. You know, friends family, fellow workers, acquaintances. That's where you'll first and probably right off the bat notice the opposition. It'll come from those that you are closest to. Turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 10, verse 35 and 36, please. Here, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking and he's going to share some truth with us and It's not an easy truth to receive. It's not necessarily a pleasant one to think about, but it is a reality that we must understand and even embrace in many cases. Notice it says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 35 and 36, For I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. We knew that already. And... Oh, did I say that? I'm sorry. Okay, and, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. Well, you start dealing with those in-laws and outlaws, you got problems. No, I'm teasing. But anyway, because I have a great mother-in-law. Wow, do I ever. Boy, I'll tell you. 
So, you know, I would never joke about those things. All right. So anyway, Matthew chapter 10, he's telling us here, for I am come to set a man at variance against his father. Now that that seems a little bit out of character for God to some degree. I mean, God's a God of 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 um, order, you know, and God, it seems, is a God that wants unity and and wants peace in our lives and in our homes and in our families. And yet he said when he came to earth, he said, for I am come. I mean, it's not, you know, I mean, it's just I'm here to set a man at variance against his father. Now, why in the world would he say that? I mean, there's no, no, nowhere else in Scripture where you get the idea that God wants a son to be at variance or in opposition to or, or in some kind of conflict with dad. That's not how God operates. And the same thing here with a daughter and a mother or, or even a, a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. It, it, God would never want that, it doesn't seem. It would never make sense. Well, let me tell you, I don't believe for one moment that God ever wanted that, nor does God intend for that to be the case. Like, in that sense, he doesn't want that to happen, I guess I'm saying. But unfortunately, he says, listen, I'm going to tell you something. When I came to earth, I came to draw a line in the sand. When I came to earth, I came to say, listen, whether it's mom or dad, brother or sister, aunt or uncle, grandma or grandpa, there's going to be a line that's clearly drawn, and there'll be some on one side, there'll be others on the other side, and I'm going to bring variance between them. You say, whoa, that sounds kind of crazy. I mean, why would he do that? Well, he came to divide. He literally did, in a sense, because when mankind's representative, Adam, fell, guess what? We all fell with him. And when God rescues us from sin, he removes us from the muck and the mire of this world. Look, if you would, in Psalm chapter 40, verses 1 through 3. Psalm chapter 40. If God, the Lord Jesus Christ, did not come to earth to bring division, if you will, to, to bring variance between, then all of us would still be in the same boat. Or even worse, the same muck and mire. We'd all still be, we'd all still be sunk in that muck and, muck and mire. But notice what it says in Psalms even, chapter 40, verse 1 through 3. The chief musician, it says, a psalm of David, I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my goings. And He hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it, and fear, and shall trust in the Lord. There is a contrast, there is a difference between the psalmist and others around him. At one time, the Bible says, he said, I waited patiently on the Lord. I, I, I waited on him and he inclined unto me. He heard my cry. And then it says, he brought me up out of an horrible pit. May I say today that you and I were born into sin and we're in a horrible pit. And the fact is, is that the entire world is in that pit at birth. Every last one of us is bound in sin and we are stuck in the muck and the mire of this wicked, sinful world. And it is Jesus Christ that came to this earth to bring variance between mom and uh, daughter and Father and Son, because one will be lifted up and the other one will remain planted in that muck and mire. And there'll be such a difference, such a, a variance, such a, a uniqueness of the one versus the other that there'll be just division. And it'll be obvious. It'll be so obvious. 
The change that takes place within and without us will bring distinction and even division. Sons and fathers, daughters and mothers will not see eye to eye any longer. In some cases, the glaring differences that will result in being saved will cause even family to resent, resist, or even reject those who once fit in. This is the way it is. John chapter 1 verse 11, Jesus of Christ speaking said, He came, it's, I mean John speaking in, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit concerning Christ said, He came unto His own and His own received Him not. Mark chapter 6 verse 4 says, But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. Familiarity breeds contempt. I believe that's what the verse is basically saying to some degree. But the fact is today is that even Jesus Christ in his own household, amongst the very people that saw him grow from a child up to adulthood, he said, if there was one place where they struggled to receive me for who I am and what I am, it was there. May I say, moms and dads may have a hard time with a young man or young lady who comes to Christ and lives for Jesus Christ. A wife may have a hard time with a husband that comes to Jesus before she does. A husband may really have a difficult time with a wife who has put her faith in Jesus Christ, whose life has been transformed and changed, and he's wondering what in the world is going on here. Because there's such a difference. So, first of all, what areas will this opposition come from? Number one, we said our primary opposition will come from those closest to you who know you best. Number two... From unsaved people in general. Just unsaved people in general. Now listen, that's not a knock. When you say to somebody, you're unsaved, that's not like we're cursing them. That is a descriptive word that describes their state of being, in a sense. You're unsaved versus being saved. You know, it's not, it's not, it's, it's like saying, you know, uh, born again versus no, not being born again. You know, now that's a term that the world has turned upside down, but... The fact is, is that, is that when we speak, you say somebody's lost or somebody's unsaved. It's not like you're calling them a name. You're describing their spiritual condition. Now, from unsaved people in general. Now, here's the thing we need to understand about that. There are two spiritual families that have never gotten along and never will. That's important to understand. Take your Bible, if you would, look over Genesis chapter 21. This particular reality is addressed early on in the book of Genesis, and it's further reinforced in the book of Galatians. So let's look first at Genesis chapter 21, verses 9 through 11. There in those passages, we're going to see the players in the game. We're going to note the players. Notice what it says in Genesis chapter 21, verses 9 through 11. It says, And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, which she had borne unto Abraham, mocking. Wherefore she said unto Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. And the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. Now notice the players, first of all. We have Sarah. And then we have Hagar. 
We know that Abraham married Sarah. And then, of course, there was a promise made that they would have a child. The problem was, years went by. We believe as many as 25 years went by without him and her having a child. They arrive at an age where they believe that it's over with. Matter of fact, Sarah says, man, my womb is dead. It's over. It's done. Uh, There's no way we're going to have the child that was promised to us. And in their desperation, it seems and appears that they reached out in the flesh and sought to handle the problem on their own, to correct the problem in their own strength and in their own flesh. Well, what was born, or who was born, I should say, was ultimately a boy by the name of Ishmael. Not by Sarah, of course, but instead by Hagar. Hagar. So we have Sarah and Hagar. And of course, we have Isaac, who would ultimately come after Ishmael was born. So after they had taken things into their own hands, after they had wearied in waiting on God, after a child now has been born in their flesh, now the promised one comes, this one that will be referred to as spirit. And that's Isaac. He shows up. Now right off the bat, we have some problems then. We have problems. And in this particular case, we note what the problem is. It says here that Abraham saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, probably at least 14 years of age now. And this is just a younger child, so he might be now in the early, late teens versus the child that's maybe just in, you know, the early years of his life. And he's pestering him. He's messing around with him. He's mocking him. I don't know what he said exactly. I don't know what he was really doing. I don't know. Maybe he was going, nah, 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 nah. I'm really the firstborn or what. I don't know what he was saying. I, I really don't know. And, and you know what? The Bible doesn't really tell us, does it? But he's mocking him. And I'll tell you what. There is no wrath like that of a mother's. And Sarah is hopping mad, buddy. She is ticked off. She's red hot. And she goes to Abraham and she says, now listen, husband of my youth. We've been together a long time. And you had to be so stupid and get along with that woman. Wait a second. He's the one that told you to do it. But anyway, you know how that goes, guys. So just don't argue at this point. He says, "Uh, yes, dear. You get rid of that guy. Well, I'll tell you what, that was really a burden on Abraham because that was his son too, you know. But remember this, that was not Sarah's son. Well, that was a rough spot. That was a bad situation. And let's face it, can we agree that from that point on, the offspring of Ishmael, the offspring of Isaac have continually, constantly been at battle with one another? But turn now, if you would, to Galatians chapter 4, verse 22. Because there's more to the story, more than just the account that we are left with in Genesis. But what we're going to find is, according to Galatians, this account in Genesis is really a, an allegory. Let's see what this is. Notice what it says here in Galatians chapter 4, verse 22. For it is written... Chapter 4, verse 22 of Galatians. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. 
But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh. But he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory? Now that's important. Notice what's going on here. Of course, we have the players involved. We have Sarah and we have, of course, Hagar. We have Isaac. We have Ishmael. And in this particular case, there are two sons. One being born by the bondmaid, who is a slave. That's what they're saying. And the other being born by a free woman. Now listen, this is important to understand. We have an allegory now, the Bible tells us. An allegory is a figurative sentence or discourse in which the principal subject is described by another subject resembling it in its properties and circumstances. Let me make it simpler. An allegory is a figurative description of real facts. So it's a description of something that's really happened. So I'm going to use this story to illustrate or to, I guess in one sense, um, picture this truth. All right? So that's kind of where we're at with that. So he goes on to say here, this allegory, he says, which things are an allegory, for these are the two covenants. He goes on to say, the one from Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar or Hagar. And this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. And answereth to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. So he's saying, this is an allegory. This whole thing that we're reading about over in the Old Testament with Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Hagar and Ishmael is an allegory. It's a picture of a spiritual truth that is real. It is legit. It is it is exactly what God intended us to understand from it. He says, listen, there are two covenants and they're pictured in Hagar and Sarah. There are two unique, distinct covenants. The law. Bondage. That's Hagar. On the other hand, we have grace or freedom pictured in Sarah. Now, let me tell you something. This is not about God having favor on one or the other women, by the way. This is just simply about the fact that in life, choices are made. And now God says, based on the choices that were made, based on what transpired and took place, I'm going to utilize that to teach a spiritual truth. And he did that. He didn't hate Hagar. He didn't despise Hagar. He didn't look down on Hagar. He just simply said, this is what she represents. This is not a put down. He's taking both people. If anything, Sarah really messed up here. If anything, she really went off the deep end. But instead, because the child was promised to Abraham and Sarah, she represents grace or freedom. Hagar represents the law and bondage. Because they both produced offspring, and both of those represent something distinct and different. Now, he continues in verse 27 of Galatians. He says, For it is written, Rejoice thou barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry, thou that trailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. There you go. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? What he's saying is, and according to the passage, he's saying, the believer today is pictured in who? 
Isaac, the child of promise. We are the children of promise. And so, what we'll also understand is that Ishmael pictures those that are still in the flesh then. We have the children of promise that are born of the Spirit. We have the child here now in bondage, enslaved, enslaved in, 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 in that sense, and the flesh. There's these two covenants, there's these two kids, and they represent two different groups. But then, it goes on verse 29, but as then, he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit, even so it is now. Now watch, here's where we get to our thought. Notice that he that was born after the flesh, who was that? Ishmael. Notice he goes, he persecuted him that was born after the Spirit. Isaac. Remember we read back in Genesis how he mocked him. And in this case it says he, he persecuted him. So the one born after the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted the one after the spirit, Isaac. The passage basically then points out the contrast and the conflict between those who are born after the flesh or the world and those that are born after the spirit in Christ. So when he's talking about these two young men here, but as then, just like it was back there in Genesis, he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit. Even so, it is now. He's saying, just like Isaac, or Ishmael persecuted Isaac, so now those that are in the world and in the flesh are going to persecute those that are in the Spirit. Those that are under the old covenant are going to persecute those that are under the new covenant. Wow. So guess who that represents? The world. In general, unbelievers versus believers. Unbelievers are represented or pictured by Ishmael. Still in bondage. Still in sin. And then we have the believer today. Pictured in Isaac, the child of promise, free born. And there's a battle taking place there. They never get along. And they never will. That's what he says. Now that sounds pretty ominous, doesn't it? Turn if you would to John chapter 3. There is no way in the world in which we live. That believers should be getting along with unbelievers the way they do at times. There ought to be conflict. Not because we, not because we introduce it, not because we try to inspire it, not because we seek to invoke it. No, not, not at all. But just because we are so different. We ought to be so different from the world. We ought to think so differently from the world. We ought to see things from a totally different perspective. And that should just, that will infuriate the world. Have you ever talked to somebody and you're trying to get your point across? And I, I, I'm, like, I, I'm a little bit, I've been there like this before years ago, especially when I was younger. And I was trying to get my point across. And, and I'd say, you know, hey, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they'd say, I don't see it that way. What? What do you mean you don't see it that way? How can you not see it that way? And by the way, when you get all bent out of shape about that, can I tell you what that's rooted in? Here's the big word. Insecurity. When everybody has to believe the way I believe. 
Everybody has to think the way I think. When someone can't have a different opinion than me, it's because I'm insecure. And usually my frustration isn't because I'm so worried that they're not going to get it, because it's really going to wreck and ruin their life if they don't figure it out. It's probably because I can't stand the fact that they don't see me as some authority, that they don't recognize me as somebody that knows what he's talking about, that they don't acknowledge my greatness and my ability to conquer this intellectual whatever. So I get all bent out of shape. What do you mean you can't see it? Are you kidding me? It's, it's as clear as the nose on your face. You can't see it. And it's frustrating. When people don't see things the way you see them at times, it can be extremely frustrating. Well, you, know, when, you know how it is today in the world in which we live. Let's go ahead and look at the facts. And one goes, well, I don't believe that. And the other one goes, don't you see the facts? Don't you consider the facts? Don't you see what really happened? They go, well, I don't know. I just think and feel like this. Who cares how you feel? Look at the facts. Doesn't that drive you crazy? Do you know that as frustrated as you might get because people don't see things the way you see them, do you understand that as believers, if the world and we, us, can see things eye to eye, if we can truly walk together and be agreed, if we can really go through life and there not be some kind of distinction between our person and our, our perspectives, and then there's something wrong with somebody and it isn't the world. How can two walk together except they be agreed, he says in Ecclesiastes? How can your best friend be a lost person? I'm sorry. I'm just going to say it because how is it? You know what friendship means? Friendship means that you can share the most deepest, deepest, darkest things with your friend. You open up your heart and you give that friend the, you give a friend the permission to influence you. If they're truly a friend, you give them permission to influence you. Why in the world would you want a lost person influencing you? I'm not saying that you're not acquaintances with. I'm not saying you're being friendly to. I'm not saying that you don't even go out to dinner and try to encourage them and show them that Christian can be nice people and try to win them to Christ and invite them to church. I'm not talking about that. But I'm saying if honestly I shoot pool with them, I go to their house and we have cookouts all the time and we hang out continually and I don't have really any friends at the church, my best friends are lost. There's something wrong with you, friend. There's something wrong with your Christianity. You're hiding it. It's under a bushel. No. I'm sorry. If if what we read in the Bible is true, there ought to be a distinction between you and the world. There ought to be a difference of opinion. There ought to be a difference of perspective. You ought to see things totally contrary to how the world sees it. You should not see abortion the same way the world does. You should not see gay marriage the same way the world does. You should not see uh, the kind of junk that we see in our world being passed off as morality the same way the world does. No way in the world. You can't possibly align yourself with that if you know Christ is your Savior and you're living on His behalf. It's impossible. The problem is we got a lot of world in us. We have to work at that as believers. We cannot allow the devil to have control of our life. We can't allow that aspect to have control of our life. We've got to live for Jesus. 
Even as Ishmael persecuted Isaac, so the world will persecute you and I. What an allegory. What an amazing allegory. What a truth. Those of us who are born of the Spirit and under the new covenant will forever face persecution from those who are still only born of the flesh and under the old covenant. It is just Bible. Number three, and I hurry. Anyway, I hasten. Isn't that a nicer word? I hasten. From society in general, we're going to receive opposition from society in general. We're not going to spend much time because we've already looked at the verses for this. But the nature and the course of this present world system is against God. We understand that, right? Not, not only do we see that some of the primary opposition is going to come from our family and friends and those closest to us, and also it's going to be literally from from, um, as, as we said just, just a moment ago, it's going to come from uh, the world in general or the lost in general, but it's going to literally come from society, the, the culture in which we live. There's going to be an opposition. I mean, when you think about literature and you think about television and you think about radio and you think about the Internet and you consider all the information that's being just unloaded, downloaded, and every other kind of thing that you can imagine, do you realize that that's not coming from mostly Christian people? It's part of the world system. Is there any wonder that they're pushing the gay agenda on television today? It's not what... You wouldn't be here if that stuff was okay. And neither would I. There is no race, there's no human race if men and women don't get together. It doesn't work. My point being is, they're, they're just bombarding us, they are shoving, and this, this is what drives me nuts. This is the, the real, I guess, uh, hypocrisy of it all. The, as soon as you open your mouth on behalf of Christ, they say, don't shove your religion down my throat. And yet that's all they do. Shove it down our throats. And you know what's sad, truthfully? Let's be honest. They don't have to shove too hard because we're going. You know, you've seen them. Little bird, mama flies into the little, in, in the little bit. And that's about how we are with the world's junk. We do, feed me. Well, we've got to be careful what we're letting the world drop into our our, our mouths, what we're allowing to drop into our ears and in our eyes and into our minds and hearts. Be careful is all I'm saying. Be careful. Because what's he say? Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. We read it earlier. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's a scary thought. Have you ever loved the world? I have. Do I still? Yeah, from time to time I have to war with that. That's a battle for me. I mean, it's a battle. I'm going to be honest with you. Sometimes it's a real battle. And someone says, you're a preacher, you should never battle with that. Uh, you guess what? Remember, remember there's those two things. There's that, that, those that are born in the Spirit and those that are born in the flesh. Guess what? I might be born in the Spirit, but I still got this old flesh hanging around. Sometimes the world looks pretty good. But remember, as we said last week, there's, only, there's pleasure in season only, there's only pleasure in sin for a season. He goes, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. We need to make that distinction. 
And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of the Father abideth forever. James 4.4 4 says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship, the friendship of the world, is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Oh, man. I mean, did, did anybody just feel a kink there in their life? Does that bother you a little bit? When I, I hear that verse, I, I go, Ooh, oh, that hurt a little bit. Whew. Number four, we've got to move. Of course, finally and last, the mastermind behind this opposition is who? Who is it? Satan or the devil, right? We know that, don't we? Why? He's our adversary. Right off the bat, we know this. In the book of 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, some of you could quote it, but it says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. When it's all said and done, the reason why there's going to be some opposition, the reason why there has to be a distinction even, is because there's a Satan who fell and ultimately led humanity into sin. And he's still on the warpath, folks. He's not given up and he's not given ground. And from time to time, he may change his tactics, but he's still in the same business. May I say early on in Christianity, he went to persecuting believers, trying to scare them out of obeying the Lord, trying to keep them from standing and raising the banner. He even took them into the Colosseum and saw them eaten by lions and killed by, by, by soldiers and troops. Whatever it took, he persecuted them. He ultimately killed them and martyred them, and he sought like a lion to devour them. But let me tell you something. Today, he's much more subtle at times. He lulls us to sleep. Makes us think everything's just fine. But it's just as damning and it's just as destructive. He is an adversary. And he will always be. Number two, he is currently at work in unsaved people. He's working. And if you give him ground, he'll take it in your life too, by the way. Oh, he can't possess you because you have Christ living in you. But let me tell you something. You can yield to him. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. He works in the lives of the unsaved. He doesn't want them getting saved. He doesn't want them living for God. He doesn't want them seeing things the way they really are. He doesn't want the like. To come on and then to be able to see how it really is. May God help us to understand that He is very active, He is very busy in the lives of the unsaved, those that are not in the Spirit. And that's true with us. We need to be careful. If we're walking in that flesh, then we're giving ground to Satan. Boy, I'll tell you what, He's not here to help us, He only wants to hurt us. So, what areas will this opposition come from? We said it will primarily come from the, those that are closest to you. We said from unsaved people in general. From the society in which we live. The culture in which we live. And of course, the mastermind is none other than Satan himself. May God help us as believers to be very aware of this battle that we're in. And to be victorious in his strength. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for this chance that we've had to gather today. And Lord, again, as believers, we 
need to remember who we are and what we are. Lord, we're, we're born of the Spirit. We are, Father, in Jesus Christ. Father, may we not be so comfortable